Now can I have our reading taken from Matthew chapter 8 and verse 5 to 22. Matthew 8 and verse 5 to 22. You hopefully remember some of it because we actually had a portion of it preached last Sunday by Terry. So we're going from verses 5 to 22 and I'm reading from the New International Version of the Bible. When Jesus had entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him asking for help. Lord, he said, my servant lies at home paralyzed, suffering terribly. Jesus said to him, shall I come and heal him? The centurion replied, Lord, I do not deserve you to have come under my roof, but just say the word and my servant will be healed. For I myself am a man under authority with soldiers under me. I tell this one, go, and he goes, and that one, come, and he comes. I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed, and said to those following him, truly I tell you, I have not found anyone in Israel with such great faith. I say to you that many will come from the east and the west, and will take their places at the feast with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the subjects of the kingdom will be thrown outside into darkness, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then Jesus said to the centurion, Go, let it be done just as you believed it would. And his servant was healed at that moment. When Jesus came into Peter's house, he saw Peter's mother-in-law lying in bed with a fever. He touched her hand and the fever left her, and she got up and began to wait on him. When evening came, many who were demon-possessed were brought to him, and he drove out the spirits with a word and healed all the sick. This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah. He took up our infirmities and bore our diseases. When Jesus saw the crowd around him, he gave orders to cross to the other side of the lake. But a teacher of the law came to him and said, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus replied, Foxes and dens, sorry, foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Another disciple said to him, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. But Jesus told him, follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. May God bless to us that reading of his word. Let's pray a moment. Father, as we come to look at this passage, we ask, Father God, that you may speak to our hearts, open our spirits, open our ears. May we receive a word from you. Speak into our lives, we ask, Father God, in Jesus' name. Amen. It was, like today, a beautiful day, and a wealthy man was enjoying a hot air balloon ride high in the sky. But after a while, he soon began to lose his bearings and got quite lost. So he reduced altitude and spotted a woman walking her dog in the park below. He said it a little bit more and shouted, Excuse me, miss, uh, can you tell me where we are? I've got to meet a friend in about an hour and I haven't got a clue whereabouts I am in the country. The woman looked up at him and shouted, You are in a hot air balloon, 30 feet above the ground. 
your 40 to 41 degrees latitude and between 59 and 60 degrees longitude. Well, the man was quite flummoxed by that. And he said, you must be a programmer. I am, said the woman. How do you know that? Well, said the balloonist, everything you said to me is technically, technically correct, but I still have no idea what to make of the information. The fact is, I'm still lost. And frankly, you've been no help at all. Well, the woman paused a bit. And then she said, well, you must be a politician. I am, said the man. How do you know that? Well, said the lady, you don't know where you are. You don't even know where you're going. But you've risen to where you are because of a high degree of hot air. You've made promises that you can't keep and have no idea how to keep them and you're expecting me to keep them for you. The fact is, you're in exactly the same position you were before you met me, but now somehow it's my fault. Well, we all know that story isn't true because men never ask for directions. In pre-GPS days, I was infamous in my family for never asking directions. And the very reason for that was because every time, every single time I ever stopped the car and wound down the window and asked for directions, I always got very confused and more lost than ever. That's why men don't ask for directions. And in this story in Matthew chapter 8, we meet a desperate man. And we know he's desperate because he is asking for help. He's got to the point where he has to humble himself and ask for help. So the first person we see in this passage is this soldier of a soldier. And Matthew, who's a text tax collector, who's writing to appeal to a Jewish audience, who's, uh, as any tax collector, is a stickler for detail. He recalls for us in verses 5 and 6 this. He says, when Jesus entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him asking for help. Lord, he said, my servant lies at, lies at home paralyzed, suffering terribly. We only know a couple of things about this man. The first is that he is a Roman soldier. He's described as a centurion, which is a rank within the imperial Roman army. And he'd been part of the occupying forces controlling Palestine at that time. You see, Palestine was a renowned trouble spot in the world, in the Roman Empire. It was a bit like, if you like, Northern Ireland has been for a long, long time, a place where there'd always been unrest and trouble, and trouble boiling underneath the surface. So he was a soldier from the imperial forces. And for many Jews and many Israelites, he would have been regarded as the enemy, as someone not to speak to, someone not to associate, someone not even to be seen in the company of. And the fact he was not just a soldier, but a centurion, meant that he was a man of influence. You see, centurions were the backbone of the Roman army. A legion consisted of 6,000 soldiers. In every legion, there were 60 centuries. And every century, every 100 soldiers was controlled and commanded by a centurion like this. He was a long-service soldier who had been commissioned because of his ability not simply just to command, but his ability to keep his head even in the midst of a battle. He was a really level-headed, 
practical types of people who didn't lose their rag, didn't panic, but could always remain calm even during, the, during a conflict and a battle situation. They were the cement that held the Roman army together. One ancient historian describes the centurion in this way. He writes, they must not be so much venturesome seekers after danger as men who can command steady in action and to hold their ground and to die at their posts. Centurions were literally the finest men in the Roman army. And it's interesting to note when we come to the Bible, the centurions are mentioned six times in the New Testament. And every time a centurion is mentioned, he's mentioned in a very positive way. We read about the centurion of the cross in Matthew 27. Cornelius, the first Jewish convert, was a centurion in, Ma in, Matthew, in Acts chapter 10. It was a centurion who discovered that Paul was a Roman citizen and stopped him being whipped and then protected him from the mob in Acts 22. It was a centurion when informed that Paul was a, uh, of, of a Jewish plan to murder Paul that protected him and put in, put in um, action plans to foil that plot in Acts chapter 24. It was a centurion who was ordered by the procurator Felix to guard and take care of Paul in Acts 24. It was a centurion called Julius who took Paul on his final journey to Rome and treated the apostle with every dignity, even saving his life on one occasion in Acts 27. These soldiers, these backbone of the Imperial Roman army are regarded very highly in the Bible. And so this experience, this level-headed soldier comes to a Jewish carpenter, a strange Jewish carpenter stroke rabbi called Jesus and asks for his help. And when he gets there, he regards him and calls him Lord and uses the honorific title of Sir. Lord, he said, my servant lies at home paralyzed, suffering terribly. Even this centurion's request is not for himself. It's for his servant someone who worked for him. But Jesus decides to test this centurion. He sees his faith, but begins to test him to see how far will he go, because he knew, and the centurion knew, that there's no way that a Jew could legally, under the Jewish law, come into a house of a Gentile. Gentiles were regarded as unclean. They were regarded as dirty because they didn't live by the Jewish law. And the Jewish law kept them spiritually and physically pure. And therefore for you as a Jew to go into a Gentile's home was for you to go into some place that was dirty. It was a bit like COVID without wearing a mask and touching everything and become contaminated by what was in that home. Any self-respecting Jew at the time of Jesus would not go into a Gentile home, especially the home of a soldier. And yet Jesus, he knows this, and he tests him by saying to him, he says, shall I come and heal him? Shall I come to your home, he says. He was testing how strong the man's faith was, but the response the soldier gave actually astounded Jesus in verse 8. Lord, I do not deserve to have you come under my roof, but just say the word, and my servant will be healed. Jesus would have gone to his home, 
Because Jesus wasn't living by the ceremonial law that had grown up around the Old Testament because a lot of what the Jews and the scribes and the Pharisees taught in the time of Jesus isn't biblical. It's not what we find in the law of Moses. It's, it's a con concoction and, 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 and an extrapolation of the law of Moses. So Jesus would have gone in that home. But he didn't need to because the, the Roman soldier says, just say the word. I don't need you physically there. Just say the word and it will be so. Just say the word. I wonder if you believe that this morning, that the words of Jesus have such power, all he has to do is just say it, and it will be done. Now, Jesus isn't defeated by the COVID pandemic. He doesn't have to physically be in our presence. He doesn't physically have to touch us. He can just say the word, and it will be done, because he is all-powerful. He is Lord. I wonder if you really believe that and have real faith in the word of Jesus, in the promises of Jesus, in the promises of God. This soldier said to Jesus, I trust you because I'm a man under authority with soldiers under me. And I tell this one, go, and he goes, and that one, come, and he comes. This man, as a soldier, understood authority. And he therefore looked at Jesus and understood that Jesus comes into this world under and with the authority of God himself, the authority of the creator, the one who made the universe. And so Jesus says to the crowd, I tell you, I have not found such faith among anyone in Israel. In other words, this man's a Gentile, but he has greater faith than all the Israelites, all the sons of Moses that I've met. He believes more about me, about my father, and about the power of my word. You see, faith is at the center of our relationship to God. It is never religion. It is never race. You cannot be born a Christian. You cannot be born safe. You cannot be saved because you come from a Christian family, because you go to church every Sunday. You are only saved by that connection through faith, that connection that believes in the word of God and takes those words into your heart and says, I believe that and I will live by that. That is what saves us. We're not saved because we're British. As, as Rebecca was saying earlier on, with all our restrictions and our inability sometimes to, to open ourselves up. You're not saved because you're British, far from it. <laughs> You're saved because you're connected to Jesus Christ, because you take him at his word. You believe in what he says. Faith is the key. And we need to choose God to follow his son and to believe in his words. And this nameless centurion, this, this soldier, but we don't even know his name, shows us such a great example of faith in the New Testament. And so we're told that Jesus said to the centurion, go, let it be done to you just as you have believed it would. And his servant was healed at that moment. You know, this whole passage in Matthew chapter 8 starts off with the healing of a leper. And the leper asked Jesus the question. He says, Lord, if you're willing, let me be healed. And Jesus says, I am willing. And as, and as Terry told us last, last week, Jesus reached forward and touched the man. There was a physical touch, a physical connection that saved that man. And later on, when he meets the mother-in-law of Peter, again, there's a physical connection. But God is not limited to physical connections like that. He can just say the word. This, if you like, is a virtual healing in the New Testament. A healing done on the airways. A healing done with a command. 
But how does the world and universe begin? It begins with a command, doesn't it? In Genesis chapter 1, God said, let there be light, and there was light. God can say it. His words have power and authority in our lives if we allow them to. So God, first of all, Jesus meets this centurion, this, this soldier. Next he meets the mother, the mother, and he goes into Peter's house and meets a very different person. In fact, he's not going there to heal. He's come out of a healing context. He's going there to get some refreshments and to rest. And how frustrating it is when you're going to actually relax and suddenly you discover there's a job to do. But that's never, that never phases Jesus. When he sees a need, he always meets that need. And so he comes into Peter's house and he sees his mother-in-law laying in bed with a fever. And we're told in verse 15, he touched her hand and a fever left her and she got up and began to wait on him. Do you see what's happening in this passage? Two very different people. First of all, a soldier, a centurion, a man who understood authority. Jesus meets him where he is and gives a word of command and, and defeats that evil, that, that, um, that, that illness in his servants and he's released from that and becomes, uh, becomes well. And then next he meets a mother, a mother who no sooner as she's been healed than she leaps out of bed and she begins to serve him. You see, she had the servant heart of a mother. She was someone who wanted to respond in love, as mothers do to the family, by doing things, by caring, by providing. Two very different people. And so this woman, also not named, is an example of how we must react when we receive the healing of Jesus. She didn't lay in bed and think, well, I've got malaria and I, you, I may be better, but I really need to rest now. The doctor says so. I probably need a, at least 24, 48 hours before I get out of bed. She didn't lay there and think, well, Peter, you're home now. You know, you don't do very much, son-in-law. Go and make the supper for your friend. She was overcome with joy and gratitude. But she leaps up and begins to serve her new Lord. I wonder about us. We live in a time when everyone bangs on about their rights, what the world, what the country, what the government owes them. And even in our church, we find people saying, what the Lord owes them. I shouldn't have sickness. I shouldn't have suffering. I have my rights as a Christian. I should live a perfect life in Cloud Land as soon as I declare Jesus as my Lord. That's not the way it works out. God is preparing us for heaven. And the trials we experience in this life prepare us spiritually and fashion us spiritually for when we're going to be in glory with our Lord and Jesus Christ. We are being prepared. And those challenges we face, how we respond to those challenges in life, is part of that preparation for heaven. Because you and I are eternal beings. Faith is the key. What about us? Do we leap out of bed having been saved? Do we leap out of bed and want to serve our Lord and Master? To show our love by acts of service, by caring for those God has called us to care for, like Carew was mentioned earlier on, we have opened door. You see, we're saved for service. We're not saved to remain laying on our beds of sickness and to live a life of luxury, watching the TV and seeing how many series of Netflix we can ma manage to watch in a month. 
We are saved for service. We are saved to get out there and to carry that good news and point others to Jesus because Jesus came to serve. Matthew points this out in when he quotes Isaiah 53. He took up our infirmities and bore our diseases. He bore our diseases. That means he carries our diseases. He carries our sin. Upon the cross, he carried our sin. He is a servant. He came to earth as a servant to serve us. And if we're to follow Jesus, we follow him by serving because that's the example he's given us. Jesus came to serve. And so at the end of the pit passage, we have these two characters, sadly both men, who come to him and claim to be followers of Jesus, but both of whom their, follow, their, their discipleship is questionable. And the first was a pupil. He was an academic, a member of the scribes. He was a student who loved to study. And he came to Jesus and said, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. In verse 19, he called Jesus teacher because he's referring that he was following Jesus to learn. He wanted to feed his mind but not feed and grow his spirit. And often when Matthew mentions the difference between those who call Jesus Lord and those who call Jesus teacher, he's making the comparison. He was a teacher. He was looking for a comfortable academic life. Perhaps he wanted to increase his status among the scribes by studying this rabbi, this strange carpenter rabbi, and becoming the authority upon Jesus. But Jesus saw through him and he says, to follow me is not comfortable. He says, foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to rest his head. In other words, we don't follow Jesus on our terms. To follow Jesus is not to adopt a comfortable lifestyle. It's not to find an easy lifestyle. Jesus began life in a borrowed stable and ended his life in a borrowed tomb. He had nothing. He brought nothing into the world and took nothing out of the world. In other words, it can be rough to be a Christian, not easy to carry your cross, difficult. And Jesus was trying to challenge this man who didn't really want to be challenged at all. And then he had the procrastinator who in verse 22 said, Lord, let me first go and bury my, fa my father. But Jesus said to him, follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. Now that may sound pretty harsh. It sounds like Jesus is saying to him, no, you can't go and bury your father. No, you follow me now or don't follow me at all. It sounds pretty harsh, doesn't it? In fact, it was a requirement by law for every Jewish male to bury their father. Not to bury his father would have been frowned upon deeply within the Jewish society. But note this. In Israel 2,000 years ago, as today, you have to borrow, bury a body within 24 hours. That is the law, same with the Muslim faith. Because with no refrigeration, the body will corrupt very quickly and soon begin to smell. Now, if that man's father had died that day, there is absolutely no way he'd be on a hillside listening to the rabbi Jesus. He wouldn't have been there. He would have been home dealing with the burial of his father. What we're dealing with here is a cultural expression. I must bury my father. And it was used 2,000 years ago and even is used today in the Middle East to describe the responsibilities, the filial responsibilities of a son or a daughter to their parents. 
It refers to you looking after them in their old age and sacrificing your life for a period, caring for them until the point in which they die and you inherit the estate and then you can look after yourself. This man was actually saying, look Jesus, I've got an elderly father. I'll follow you in 5, 10, 15 years' time when he's dead. I can't follow you now. I've got my duties and responsibilities to my father. He was using duty as an excuse not to follow Jesus. And so Jesus said, no, let the dead bury the dead. Come and follow me now. This is the very reason why the prodigal son is so condemned in the New Testament. Because the prodigal son refused to bury his father. He took the inheritance before his father was dead. This was an excuse. And Jesus said, let the dead bury the dead. Come and follow me now. You see, when we call, Jesus calls us to follow him, we must respond then. The parable of the sower tells us that if the seed falls on here, healthy ground, but the seed is left on the surface, it's picked up by the birds and carried away and never grows in our lives. Now is the time to respond to the call to follow Jesus. So in this passage, we see two people. We see a soldier who understands authority, and recognizes the authority of Jesus. And we see a mother who understands service and recognizes the response to Jesus is that of serving. Two people, we don't know their names. I look forward to meeting both of them in glory. They'll be there because they understood the nature of Jesus' ministry and they understood the nature of our response to that ministry of service. People, do you recognize the mighty God that we have? But his word is powerful. He will just speak it and it will happen. In this pandemic and during all the uncertainties of this present age, we live with much, as Donald Trump calls it, fake news out there. But there is. There's loads of fake news all over the media. Don't take your authority from the media. Don't even take it from the papers or take it from the, the, the newscasters on TV. If you want truth and authority, take it from the pages of the Bible. Take it from the words of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because he is true. His words are true. And you can depend upon them. Because what he says will happen. And as you take those words, respond in service. Carry that message that Jesus Christ is Lord. To your friends, family, your place of work to those in your street and those that you meet. Let's bring truth, light, and real authority in the lives of those you meet through the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.